Hello, time for another Military History Verbalized podcast. And today we have a special guest, Justin, who has a master at, in military history. Welcome, Justin. Hello, I'm glad to be here. And today we will talk about some interesting observations and tidbits um, Justin had about the Russo-Japanese War. Yeah, I've been reading in greater detail on the conflict, something like a, a, a battle, or a, not a battle, a war that kind of new in very, very general, almost stereotyped terms, because it's always kind of discussed, uh, you know, I read up, uh, you know, I'm like an Asia-Pacific war guy, so it's always kind of comes up, but only in the very most general sense, so getting to actually read up on it in some detail is quite interesting. Uh, and I just thought, you know, it'd be interesting to share some of the general observations and kind of briefly sketch out the war. Uh, in basic terms, because you know most people, I'm sure that are listening, probably don't have any knowledge of how it unfolded at all. So, yeah, I know it's, <laughs> it's it's similar to me. I, I was mentioned in the artillery combat video I did that it was. It's always mentioned, but nobody really talks about it or goes into detail. It's always on on the side. Oh, there was this major conflict, and you know some tidbits, but basically it's like a great enigma. And many often mention that it's very similar to World War One in some cases, at least in land warfare. But I think there are also quite some differences. Yeah, like, for example, the one area of the conflict that really does kind of line up with how you would see, particularly the Western Front in the Great War uh, pan out, was the Siege of Port Arthur on the, on the Liaodong Peninsula. Um, it was the longest and bloodiest land battle of the war. Because uh, the other engagements of the war kind of took place, uh, that took place further north, kind of in Manchuria proper, uh, were battles of maneuver. So that, you know, with one side trying to turn a flank or conduct a grand encirclement or try to uh, fight a staged withdrawal, like, you know, kind of war of movement stuff. But the siege of Port Arthur, uh, they didn't have that room to maneuver the force to space ratios. Uh, just did not allow for these, you know, grandiose encir encirclements and things like that. And the Japanese Third Army under Lieutenant General uh, Nogi uh, Maresuke, Maresuke, yep, <laughs> was tasked with uh, capturing Port Arthur on the um, Liaodong Peninsula, uh, and they had to do this in in the face of Russian defenses, which, while they weren't not uh, not as complete as they could have been for various reasons, they still were quite formidable and exacted an extremely heavy toll on the Japanese attackers. Like you start we in this conflict you start to see great war levels of casualties almost. Um the grand total of Japanese casualties was around fifty eight thousand with a thirty with a further fifty ish thousand fallen ill to diseases. So just in case, you know, disease is one of those things that people don't talk about. It's like, holy crap, that it's almost one for one casualties in the actual fighting versus disease, particularly barely, uh, berry berry, because um, what is berry berry? It's like a, a, a vitamin B one deficiency, I think. Basically, they they didn't the Japanese rations didn't have enough grain in them because it was all like processed white rice. Ah. So yeah, it, it's it's a pretty debilitating um, condition. I think it can ha it can like mess with your um, thinking, like your memory can start slipping and all sorts of things like that it's it's unpleasant but the japanese like out of all the out of the 50 50ish thousand that fell to the disease on the japanese side i think like 30ish thousand were were berry berry so okay that's yeah. a lot cuz yeah edward dre said it was it was mainly a ration a ration issue just the 
they didn't they weren't getting all the vitamins they need so yeah yeah, they probably didn't know for quite some time. Yeah, because if you if you're fat and yeah, and you have a deficiency, it's it's hard to determine. Yeah. Any uh, anyway, but Nogi, um, who was the commander of the Third Army, he was kind of he's kind of a fascinating subject all of his own. Uh, he was distraught by the casualties he was sustaining in his offensives because he he's a very interesting individual. He um he wasn't a very capable field commander. Indeed, some people would say he's basically incompetent. Uh, but he also possessed a, a level of self-awareness that probably many Russian commanders could have used. He was completely self-aware that he was not a very good commander, and he was just... It, the basic, this broke him. He was already a very um, broken man, but I rarely recommend reading up on him. He's, he's a tragic figure. He's kind of like a, raised to almost like a war god in the immediate post-war period, uh, and then pretty much through the end of Imperial Japan. He was kind of a, an old school man born into a samurai family and he was thrust into a modern and rapidly changing world. So it was kind of world, two worlds colliding. So he, he was later on, he was seen as this, war, uh, this, this major really good guy in a way, but he actually thought he was incompetent or what? Yeah, like his performance was poor and he knew it. And... They kind of started post-war. There was a lot of myth making and things like. He was the guy that took Port Arthur, and then he ended up killing himself after uh, the death of the emperor. Because um, you know, uh, in, tradi in traditional Japan, you, you know, a, a good samurai he would not outlive his master. Basically, his um, and even though that was technically banned, actually, he ended up killing himself. Because he'd wanted to kill himself for actually decades at that point, because he lost a regimental standard uh, during the Satsuma Rebellion in like 1877, and he wanted to kill himself then because he'd been dishonored. But uh, literally, the emperor wrote, said, "No, you're not. You're not allowed." And but finally, after the emperor died, he killed himself, and then his wife actually killed herself. Is it's just it's, and you know so they were sell they were raised to almost mythic levels but yeah like overall his performance was disastrous like they they the japanese were aware of it too they kind of wanted to replace him but that they knew if they fired him or canned him they uh he would end up killing himself it's you know it's just <laughs> okay that sounds pretty insane <laughs> he, on he's, many he's levels. a very interesting yeah he's a very interesting guy to read up on i mean he lost both his sons too i think both in the russo japanese war i know at least one was under his uh he what one was a runner and uh, when he heard the news, like his first question was, "Did he accomplish his mission?" And then when they when he found out that he had accomplished his mission, he was he's like, "Oh, okay, well, got his job done." Even though this was a son that died, he he's he read up on him. He's great. Yeah, uh, very fascinating. <laughs> but anyway, the yeah, the Japanese and the Russians in the siege of Port Arthur were forced to adapt many tactics that would not have been alien to the trenches of the Western Front in the First World War. Uh, extensive use of barbed wire entanglements, uh, hand grenades, uh, a dramatic increase in, in artillery usage and siege artillery usage. Because, um, you know, Japanese attacks started out pretty simplistic and then they slowly increased in sophistication, you know, increased artillery support, lots of trench digging. Um, the, the Russian um, defenses were situated in like fortresses. And the Japanese realized they had to bring up big siege guns to just reduce these fortifications. And then in combination, instead of charging up these hills over exposed ground, 
they dig trenches methodically up the hill to um, minimize the amount of open territory they had to um, run through. So there lots of trench digging and things like that. And the Russians, of course, their defenses were very World War One-esque, lots of tre- uh, you know, trenches and fortresses. Uh, and the Russians fought extremely hard, despite their inadequate leadership uh, in one major general, Baron Antoli, and I'm going to butcher Russian names, I don't do Russian names, Stoessel? Stoessel? But, yeah, um, it looks rather, rather German. Stoessel. Yeah, I think it is actually German, I want to say, because I, I think the two S's that are anglicized, I think that's an S set. So I think it is. Ah, yeah, such... and the O-E is also usually an yeah, Sto- Stoessel? Stössel. Stössel? Stössel? Okay. Stössel? <laughs> or, or if it's SZ, it would be Stössel. It would be slower. Stössel? Yeah. Yeah. I'll take your word. <laughs> um, but uh, history hasn't treated him well. Uh, Russian command during the siege was a mess, which is kind of. Russian command in general is kind of a mess throughout the war. Uh, there were many. There were more able Russian commanders in Port Arthur, but. Um, the man, you know, Stossel, or I'm going to just butcher it over and over again, who ultimately led the uh, the doomed defense. Um, by the judgment of works I've read, he surrendered prematurely. He was kind of a defeatist. Uh, the, ju- the judgment of other Russian author- uh, officers in Port Arthur at the time, and even the men, a lot of the men under the command kind of came to the same, so like they could have kept fighting, and some of them wanted to keep fighting, but he, he was, he f- surrendered before he should have. And his command overall was pretty inept. Could he have won at all, or could it do not just really? One, not really won, but tied down Nogi's third army longer than he ended up doing. I think it was like about a month or something like that. They probably could have continued holding out, like they weren't completely out of ammunition or anything like that, but decided to surrender earlier. And Nogi actually, post-war, he tried to say that it was okay, that he thinks it was warranted for him to surrender. But, you know, it's a, it's a debate, and from what I've read, people have kind of come down on the side that he really, I mean, he was an incompetent, and he surrendered earlier than he probably should have. But that's kind of one of those judgments that, I mean... I haven't. I'm not well read enough on it to have my own firm opinion, but that's kind of what I've read. Mm. Now, in the now, as far as the land campaigns go beyond Port Arthur, uh, which are typically probably lesser known because Port Arthur's the big battle that um, you know the big grinding attrition. And when people say, "Oh, it's just like the Great War," that's kind of the battle they're typically thinking of, because almost all the engagements of the other part of the war kind of followed a similar pattern. And that was Russian defenses were established. Uh, the Japanese would attack, and they'd often throw the very last of their reserves into the fray to just achieve victory. You know, the Russians would begin to to lose, and then Kuropatkin, um, General Alexei Kuropatkin, who was the commander of Russian forces, would order a withdrawal because uh, he kind of intended to trade space for time as he waited for more and more reinforcements to arrive from Europe. And then his intention was to crush the Japanese with overwhelming force and, uh, and a counterstroke. Uh, and historians haven't been very kind to him either. Uh, Rising Sun and Tumbling Bear, one of the uh, one of two kind of big single volume surveys of the war in English. He wrote in, in the opening chapter on the Battle of Liaoyang that uh, quote the Japanese were but a few miles from the city gates, and this was more attributable to his failure as a general than to any other reason. His caution, acquiescence, inability to bear responsibility, 
lack of determination to execute his own plans, and the gradual erosion of his confidence being replaced by an awesome respect for his enemy were the nails in the military coffin of his career, end quote. So... Very uh, nice. Can, yeah, he hasn't come off particularly well either in the history. Um, and the, the Battle of Liaoyang was pretty typical. It was a major engagement between the Japanese and the Russians in Manchuria, and something I hadn't even heard of before I started reading in detail about the war. And it was pretty typical. Uh, it was an important engagement, uh, even though it was smaller in scale than the better-known Battle of Mukden, which was one of the largest land engagements in history up to that point. Uh, Liaoyang was meant to be a decisive battle where the Russians would finally stand and fight, at least uh, so Kuropatkin told his men, though um, in the official Russian history there's some evidence that surfaced that he uh, still planned to withdraw to Mukden uh, if he didn't like the odds, he just didn't really inform his subordinates as such. Uh, the Russians set up three defensive lines, and it actually outnumbered the Japanese, so they were fighting defensively and had the numbers advantage. Uh, so the Russian position was reasonably strong, and overall, Kuropatkin had the advantage. Uh, I'm not going to go into great tactical details, that's not really the point of this, but over the course of the battle, um, the commander of the Japanese First Army, he incorrectly thought the Russians were withdrawing, so he ordered the crossing of uh, the Taitsu River, um, which was with a very pretty small, like a handful of divisions, it was largely unprepared force, because he thought he was pursuing a withdrawing enemy. Uh, even though the Russians actually were not withdrawing at the time. And they'd even anticipated the exact location of the crossing and had men and plans in place to stop a much stronger crossing than what was actually occurring, yet they did not act. And kind of did not act is almost the tagline of the Russian performance uh, in this part of the land war. Uh, lots and lots of missed opportunities. Uh, eventually the Russians would withdraw, uh, and despite the situation not being completely unsalvageable and possessing, they even possessed an uncommitted reserve. They did uh, not after the act withdrawal. because they didn't receive uh, orders or... Well, Kuropatkin himself was, he would set out these plans that were brilliant on paper. And then when, the, when finally it was time to act on his plans, he would back down. He, would, he was a very cautious commander. And then a lot of his subordinates were either cautious or incompetent or weren't really listening. So through a, a series of, of failures, the, basically the, the Japanese had stuck a bunch of unprepared divisions on the far side of an unfordable river, and the Russians were set up to completely annihilate them, and they didn't. They, there was no movement. The Japanese crossed the river unopposed, even though there were plans in place to stop them. And that's kind of something that a similar deal that would repeat over and over again in this part of the war. And really, after the withdrawal at Liaoyang, the Russian morale was lowered significantly because the men had been told this was the decisive battle. We are not falling back more. Even if Kuropatkin had other ideas, this is what filtered down to the men. So when they were finally withdrawing again, you can imagine how disheartening that is when you were told that this was the decisive battle, yet now you're running away again. Yeah, it sounds like quite an achievement also to not act on a plan and uh, yeah. the best situation is yet. I, I'm not entirely yeah. sure. I talked with the with a staff officer lately and he noted something that this could happen usually in, in another way when you order an attack that you have um, decision paralysis that basically mm -hmm. you have like a subordinate unit and it requests more uh, information from from the upper unit and then they send the information back, but 
they still don't act and ask it again and again and again. And and he told me actually a joke about it, but I didn't get the joke. And he knows okay, if you would have been in the military in a certain position, you would you would completely understand because this happens sometimes that everyone is basically um, overwhelmed on a certain level. <laughs> for, for instance, a company level, but you have all on battalion level or army level, and that nothing happens except that everyone exchanges information. So maybe. Do you know what this happened there? Like they ask, okay, um, we have this plan here, but should we act now? And 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 up there they, they said like, oh well, what is the situation exactly? So basically that they they ask back and forth until the Japanese are over there. Yeah, like there was definitely an element of paralysis. Um, one historian of the battle, uh, Richard Conaton, uh, um, he basically said there was also there was a lot of um, unit kind of tunnel vision where a corps or a division or whatever that was like to the immediate flank of a problem area, they were so focused on their own sector that they didn't have any awareness. Like if they just lended a little bit of support to the people on their flank or, you know, like looked up from their immediate tactical situation to see what was going on around them, that the Russians really could have laid it in for the Japanese. And this is kind of, and it happened at Yaoyang multiple times. I mean, there's one, instance where there was a complete disaster the japanese um like were trashing a russian unit in 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 sight of the entire russian cavalry corps which didn't lift a finger to even assist in in the ongoing like even help the russians pull out of this disaster it's and it happened over and over and over again where units weren't really working together properly or uh things like that kind of follow-on engagements after Liaoyang kind of continued. It was the same fight and withdraw ten, a trend, and it kind of ended with the Battle of Mukden, which again was they decided to, the Russians decided to stand, and they tried to fight, and then they ended up withdrawing. <laughs> and it just happened over and over. Um, so while it was, you know, the Japanese won victory after victory, but they, were, they never won a decisive Sedan-style victory. That eluded them. That's what they wanted. They wanted a, you know, a, a great crushing victory, and they never got it. By the end of the land campaigns, you know, after the Battle of Mukden, both sides were exhausted. The Japanese had pushed the Russians from the field over and over and over again with the very last of their reserves, and but they had been unable to actually destroy the Russian armies. And the Russians on their side, their morale was destroyed. Because, I mean, if you imagine you're these Russian soldiers, you don't really understand fully what's happening strategically. You're fighting in a war you don't really understand why you're fighting thousands of kilometers from home. And you just keep withdrawing over and over and over and over again. And it just, they were pretty much done fighting after Mukden. That was the last major engagement. Both sides were, the Japanese were exhausted and the, the Russians were exhausted in a very different way. That's quite, that sounds quite insane in many ways, yeah. And part of this was fueled by actually, Kuropatkin was crippled by poor intelligence. Um, he always assumed he was fighting a much larger Japanese force than was always the case. He, he pretty much, his assumption was always that he was outnumbered, which was usually the opposite, pretty much always the opposite. Uh, and he, he blamed the poor, uh, this on the poor performance of his cavalry, which was three times the size of the Japanese cavalry force. A little side note is that the Japanese army actually never had a strong um, cavalry tradition. So 
uh, in the Japanese army, the cavalry was actually kind of was actually a junior partner to the infantry. The infantry were the that was the um, prestigious branch of the imperial army, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, usually it's the other way around, as far as I know. Yeah, they just never developed that tradition. But um, histor- historians seem to partially agree uh, uh, with the Russian cavalry including the famous Cossacks, showing little determination to break through enemy screens or get anywhere close to enemy infantry. Uh, And overall, their combat performance was horrifically bad. Uh, Additionally, the terrain often did not favor the use of cavalry, so it wasn't wasn't just the Russian cavalry didn't want to fight. A lot of the time, the terrain was just really crappy. But ultimately, it meant that Kuropatkin was basically operating blind. Uh, the Russians were not only on the defensive, but they also outnumbered the Japanese in most of the land engagements they fought, but he didn't know that. And uh, as mentioned before, the Japanese kept going all in to push the Russians from the field, uh, but Kuropatkin never managed to successfully punish Japan's overstretched forces because he all he saw was the Japanese atta- uh, attacking him with overwhelming determination, and he would always assume that, oh, they must have lots of reserves and everything like that because they'd be stupid to be recklessly attacking him when they have absolutely no reserve left and it turns out time and time again the Japanese were throwing literally everything they had in the area into attacks like no reserve at all if anything happened the Japanese would have been in a lot of trouble so it's kind of one instance in military history where poor intelligence kind of badly undermined the effective use of a, a military force that otherwise might have been able to deal the opposing side a major blow. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, if he was so cautious, he usually assumes that the enemy would also, to a, bit, to a certain degree, be cautious. Yeah, and, and if the Japanese were extremely reckless, yeah, it yeah, kind of makes sense that he then gets everything wrong. Yeah, I mean, wrong. the... the the flip side of that coin was Japanese had very good intelligence. Uh, they had a lot of sources. Among them were sympathetic Chinese, which I know is hard. It's hard to imagine uh, in this kind, you know, after what would happen later on in the first half of the 20th century. But at this time, there were a lot of Chinese that were very sympathetic to the Japanese, you know, pushing out a okay. white power. A little question here. So the, basically, the, the Chinese liked the Japanese at this point, or did they just hate the Russians more? Yeah, the, it was probably the latter, and because there, there, there were some people that thought if the Japanese win this and they kind of push out, like maybe we'll be able to get our own thing going. There was a, a very important Chinese general that was uh, he would eventually name himself Emperor, and it's driving me insane why his name is blanking on me at the moment. He was very he because he wanted Japanese support, and it, it, the Chinese were kind of. <laughs> Because I mean, obviously the side note of this war is that you had two countries fighting a giant land war on land that wasn't either countries, which is kind of a, and you know, nobody ever asked the Chinese what they thought of this giant war taking place. But yeah, the Chinese generally favored the Japanese. And of course, since to a, to a Russian, a, a Japanese person and a Chinese person, they're basically indistinguishable. So a lot of time, you know, Japanese could just send officer like officers disguised as other people or whatever and to the to the russians it's just another asian face so the japanese could gain a lot of really good intelligence um you know including observation of russian troop movements uh they generally had better maps of the territory that was being fought over um i mean even as an interesting side note the japanese also devoted a lot of resources and talent in europe uh to undermining the russians at home 
Uh, oh. They provided lots of arms and funds uh, to various revolutionaries, um, you know, Finnish uh, um, independence movement people. They, they were doing everything to try and hit the Russian Empire at home. That's very interesting. Yeah, it was a little, I, and you know, it's one of those things where the, the historians that kind of detailed all of these operations, they don't say, oh, this is why the Russian Revolution, it's like, it's kind of impossible to determine exactly what impact that had, but of course it had an impact. I mean, when you have a foreign power pumping all of this money and giving guns out to whatever, whoever wanted to do something against the Russian Empire. Uh, against the Russian Empire and fomenting all of these independence movements and things like that. It's like, it definitely had an impact. It's just, it's pretty much impossible to assess exactly how much of an impact it had. Yeah, of course. Well, we all know what ends up happening. <laughs> yeah, we all know. And especially if it's going on so long already. I mean, this is 1904, 1905 already. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that, this is a war that really started to stoke a lot of revolutionary. Um, sentiments and things like that and i mean in the end to sum up the the uh the land war again from russian command perspective it was it was generally poor divided lots of bickering amongst um officers there were multiple incompetence that were mucking things up uh routinely eventually kropotkin is actually relieved of his command and he begs the Tsar that at least make him a core commander because he's better than most of his core commanders, is what he said himself. Um, but he he was overall he was way too cautious, uh, and he allowed the Japanese to get away with mistakes. And partially that can be a little bit forgiven because of his poor intelligence. But sometimes you really do need to be a little bit bolder. And when he had the kind of forces that he had, he could have played his hand better. Uh, and the Japanese, on the other hand, were determined to push the attack almost to the point of recklessness. Uh, and against a commander as cautious as Kuropatkin, it paid off, but it could have easily backfired. Okay, it's very interesting, especially if you look then at the second world war. Um, did Kuropatkin, did he become um, corps commander or was he completely sacked? Yeah, uh, when he was removed, he was replaced by, it might have been Alexei something. I can't remember who he was replaced by, but. Um, yeah, they, he did get. He was made just a, a command, uh, corps commanders uh, or an army commander, and ended the war that way. Although the major fighting had been that was that was over, so he really didn't do anything else for the rest of the war. And then post war, there was a trial, and I can't uh, I can't remember exactly the outcome of it. But yeah, he has <laughs> he's one of those commanders that did not um, go down well in history. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like this way. Yeah. Uh, moving to the war at sea, um, we'll t I'll talk about it just a little bit. Um, it's the, the war at sea, of course, is my jam, uh, of course, more than the uh, the land war. So, you know, I'm a naval guy at heart, and it was more than it appeared on the surface. You know, a lot of people will have heard of you know the famous annihilation of the Baltic fleet, the Tsushima Strait, but the the war at sea did not begin and end with it. There was a lot of other stuff going on, and it was kind of an interesting case of how land and sea power could interact uh, on the Japanese side, because neither could successfully prosecute the war without the other. The, the Japanese army were, of course, operating overseas. All of their supplies had to come from Japan, and to do that, they needed the Navy. <laughs> and the Navy couldn't win the war uh, against Russia on its own. It needed the army. 
So there was a, a, a pretty reasonable degree of cooperation. There was still that strong Japanese Army-Navy rivalry, but they also were able to actually work reasonably well together. <laughs> <laughs> and there were actually I- isolated Russian successes during at the in the war at sea uh, the sinking of japanese transports that were carrying men and important war material to the theater of operations the pacific squadron based out of port arthur proved to be a thorn in togo heichiro's side he was commander of the, of the japanese combined fleet um and eventually the pacific squadron was neutralized not by the navy but by the army uh with the fall of port arthur they started, they were shelling and eventually removed the Japan or the Russian Pacific Squadron as a threat. So basically, and they destroyed him in harbor with the artillery. Yeah, yeah. Well, why didn't and, they leave? Uh, they couldn't because they were kind of uh, well. They were paralyzed part by inaction, and they they would try multiple times throughout the war. But the navy was out there keeping them reasonably bottled up. But it was the army that finally um, uh, finished them with artillery on land and that was kind of a chip on the shoulder of the navy that they kind of carried with them into tsushima where that that thought that oh god we let the army sink the the enemy's fleet yeah yeah and that looks really badly on us but oh dishonorable <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh there were actually multiple attempts by the japanese to seal the russian fleet into port arthur with uh block ships and they all ended in failure. Several ship vessels on both sides were sunk by mines, which is something that is often not talked about in war, uh, naval warfare because mines are kind of uninteresting. But I mean, we're including, we're not talking a little destroyers. We're talking like multiple battleships on both sides were sunk by mines. Um, one, the Petropavlovsk, uh, took with it uh, Stepan Makarov, who is a very capable and brave Russian admiral uh, and naval theorist. You can actually find his naval. Um, his work, actually, open source and archive.org. Um, Takair uh, actually found that for me. But um, he was a very, very... And the, uh, the Japanese really respected him, too. You can find Japanese period paintings of the time of him, you know, heroically going down with his, his battleship. So he, um, he intentionally go to, went down with his battleship? Uh, I don't know about the, the details of it. Of course, the Japanese romanticize. He's on the deck the ship and he's you know kind of looking out as the as the water washes over the deck it's we don't i I don't think we actually know exactly how he went out we just know he didn't make it out uh when petra pavlovsk went down and he was he was a very popular commander among the he was a fighting admiral um there was one for example uh the japanese they they encircled. Uh, There's a lot of little small-scale destroyer actions and torpedo boat actions, and a Japanese, or a, a Russian destroyer, got caught out by the Japanese and was being pummeled just outside Port Arthur. And the the admiral of the fleet, the whole the whole squadron, he put his flag on a little cruiser and sailed out of the port to try and save the destroyer. Uh, and you know, of course, that was extremely inspiring for the. The Russian fleet seeing their commander in chief go out and risk his own life in a cruiser to try and save a single destroyer. Uh, he was that kind of hard charging fighting admiral. And it was kind of a, a very big blow when he was killed. I can imagine. I mean, so he was basically the, the opposite of the army commander. Yeah, yeah. And his, his successor was uh, Vit- Vitagriff? Vit- <laughs> 
Russian name with a V. <laughs> um, vet, vet Griff or something. But um, and he wasn't terrible. But really, once Makarov died, that took a lot of the fight out of the Pacific Squadron. They were they became kind of a fleet and being, and it kind of uh, then you know a lot of the guns were stripped out of the ships and put into the land defenses. Sailors were put ashore to help defend Port Arthur. Um. There was actually another full fleet engagement before Tsushima that probably most people have never heard of, the Battle of the Yellow Sea, which was tactically inconclusive. Uh, it was the first major engagement between fleets comprised of steel battleships, so it's actually quite interesting historically. Uh, the Russians may well have, uh, basically they were attempting to get the Pacific Squadron out, out of Port Arthur and the trap and into Vladivostok, um, and they almost did it uh, because they slipped through the Japanese noose set by Togo. Uh, Togo turned the wrong direction. He was, cutting them off, he was cutting the Russians off from Port Arthur because he thought they were just coming out to fight him, but when he saw the Russians weren't turning around, they were actually making a dash for Vladivostok. He was in a terrible position. He was in a stern chase against the Russian fleet. And what ended up happening is a lucky shell hit the flagship of the fleet, killed the entire Russian command staff, including Admiral... Uh, vi- vi- <laughs> Admiral V guy. <laughs> so there was no communication from the flagship. It jammed to uh, jammed the rudder, or uh, rudder went hard over the ship. So the ship started turning with no signals, and so the fleet, of course, saw the flagship turning. There was no signal to indicate anything was really amiss. So they started following the turn, and this chaos gave the Japanese time to close with the Russians. There was some shooting, engagement, and the Russians eventually fled back to Port Arthur. And um, the one historian actually kind of called it one of the most fortunate shells of the war, uh, from the Japanese perspective, of course, uh, as it would have been a disaster to let the Russian Pacific Squadron slip away to Vladivostok, because obviously that would have significantly increased the number of ships that Togo had to deal with uh, when the Baltic fleet was obviously slowly making its way around the world. So really, overall, the Japanese did make mistakes in the naval war. It was not a flawless, perfect victory, and the Russians had successes. It wasn't just a series of humiliating defeats. Uh, Tsushima itself wasn't extraordinary as far as Japanese performance in the battle was concerned, as the Japanese themselves admitted after the fact. Uh, Akiyama uh, Saneyuki, the planner of the Battle of Tsushima, he, and he was actually on board Mikasa, standing beside Togo during the battle, he noted that Quote, we won the victory where it was easy to win and not over something that was hard to conquer. Each division of the combined squadrons did its work well and not more. There was nothing remarkable in our bravery. We regarded ourselves as a fit example of a good fight. So, you know, even the Japanese were like, we won decisively, but it wasn't because we were so amazing. It's like we fought well, but the circumstances of the engagement meant that we were kind of putting you know, kind of putting like a, a wounded dog down. Like, it wasn't really a fair fight. Yeah, so, so a little bit of background. Basically, the Baltic fleet traveled all across the world mm-hmm. for several months to finally reach the Pacific. And then there was basically the, the fresh Japanese force and they pummeled them into death. Is this yeah, and it's proper... that whole journey is, is fascinating. Um, I, I'm not going to get into it at all, but, you know, the... It, it was pretty much a, a series of, it was simultaneously, like I like to think of, it was simultaneously an extremely impressive maritime feat 
uh, sailing literally all the way around the world. And also just a series of just embarrassing mistakes and disasters and blunders um, that quite a bit has been written about, like thinking they were under attack by Japanese torpedo boats um, in like off the British coast. And then they were shooting up the British uh, fishing fleet and caused a huge international incident and all sorts of friendly fire incidents and signaling mistakes and it's a, it's something well well worth reading up on because it is like a, a fascinating series of events this this journey around the world um and then obviously they sail all the way around the world get there and then are immediately sunk so it's kind <laughs> of a tragic tragic end to a, a that whole journey yeah but really the, the whole war has a bit of a tragic and insane yeah, vibe yeah. even the most other wars have yeah it's yeah it's I mean, in conclusion, really, to look at the Russo-Japanese War as a series of unending Japanese victories is technically true, but it's deceptive. Because the the engagements were closer run than they appeared on the surface, certainly on land. Uh, Had the Russian forces been better handled on land or at sea, Japan's luck may have run out. Because uh, it kind of uh, the, the overwhelming success that the Japanese were able to achieve kind of masked a lot of serious issues. Because as it was, Japan ended the war on the verge of financial and economic collapse and with their strategic reserves depleted. They had virtually no more men to send when the war ended. They couldn't really have continued fighting. So Japan had gone all in, but they won. And the war ended with a negotiated settlement, uh, one where the Russians came out surprisingly well. Uh, two historians called the peace settlement, quote, Russia's only victory of the war, end quote. Uh, there was actually widespread rioting and anger in Japan over the treaty because they thought they'd won this war decisively, and yet they, in the peace treaty, they didn't get that, they didn't get to dictate terms. And, you know, of course, the war had a considerable impact on other things um, from discussions of military tactics and technology all the way up to politics and grand strategy. I won't get into any of that because that's like a whole other can of worms. But hopefully this was interesting to those that have never really looked at the conflict in any detail because I know it was quite fascinating for me to read up on. Really, the two main works to start with in English are uh, The Tide at Sunrise and Rising Sun and Tumbling Bear. Uh, There's also a large amount of primary source material and other works in English from during or soon after the war. You know, um, Corbett's two-volume History of the War at Sea has recently been reprinted by Naval Institute Press, and there's actually a lot of material that's free to access online running the conflict. So if you want to find further reading. I will put the links in the description. Yeah, that'll work. (laughs) So for everyone that's interested. So, well... I thank you very much, Justin, for taking the time out to introduce us to this very interesting and insane conflict, which I'm now way more interested in reading up on. Yeah, it's uh, my pleasure because you know, I'm relatively new to reading up on this as well, and I learned a lot. It's it's a very interesting conflict to uh, read up on. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you have questions or something, just drop us a comment. Maybe we can talk about them in a future podcast. Thank you for listening and. See you next time. Bye.